Well, hello, lovely renovators. It's Bernadette here. And today's episode is a recap of our Bondi project. I've asked our son and architect, David, to come in to, and to share some of the wins and the challenges of the project. This was our second Avo Smash project that we've done where we team up with each of our children to complete a project to inject 100,000 into their property journey. So in this project, David got the loan and we put in the cash. And it was looking a bit touch and go there for a while, mainly courtesy of the Sydney property slump. So we bought in the peak and the project was, compl uh, was completed as the market was doing a nosedive. Now I'm happy to say with careful management and patience, it came through in the end and delivered on our 100K promise. In this episode, you'll learn that it takes a village to produce a successful project. David shares the challenges of not having a client to make the key decisions. And he sought input from various sources, how he negotiated the strata approval process. And you'll also hear about his more courageous choices that paid off in the end. This episode is sponsored by the My Airbnb online course. It's our new online course to learn to build your first wildly successful six-figure short-term rental business. You'll learn how to go from zero to 100,000 per year inside 12 months without owning a single property. It's about to open its doors. So if you would like to know more or to add your name to the wait list, look for details in the show notes or just email admin at theschoolofrenovating.com. You're listening to the She Renovates podcast. You're listening to She Renovates, the podcast for women who want to renovate to create an income and a life they love. So firstly, let's talk about the properties, what the property was and what the scope of the renovation was on your apartment. Mm -hmm. So I bought the apartment as a deceased estate. It was a two-bedroom two bedroom apartment, one bathroom. And the main, the sort of main component of the scope other than the cosmetic renovation factor was um, to add a bathroom into the, into the equation. So it's to turn it from a two-bedroom, one-bathroom into a two-bedroom, two-bathroom or two-bedroom, one-bathroom, one-ensuite. Um, and to add a walk-in robe into the master suite and um, open the kitchen up. Outside of that, it was it was really a cosmetic renovation. So um, new ceilings, new floors, new paint job, new kitchen. New everything. Relatively thorough. Yeah, um, yeah. Cosmetic renovation. Definitely, definitely thorough. The purchase price, so our buyer's agent purchased the property. Mm. Uh, yep. And so, can you remember what the purchase price was? Nine hundred eighty-four thousand. Okay, was a purchase. Yeah. So, from the angle of, I don't know whether this is the right way to say it, but fulfilling a passion in terms of, like, uh, I should have also preempted this by saying that David is is a registered architect. He's doing or managing renovation projects. Quite a bit, would mm -hmm. that be right? Yep. But it's a different uh, kettle of fish when it's your own project. So how did you, what, you know, from a satisfaction point of view, how did you find that? It's a, it's a kind of difficult question to answer because you're sort of, I mean, knowing that at some point it will be back on the market, you're sort of not doing the renovation for yourself in a sense. So it's, it's, it's not so different to to doing a project for a client. It's just that the client's relatively invisible. So in that in that sense, um, it has, I mean, every project has has a has a significant degree of satisfaction for us. It was a hugely satisfying thing to do. It was probably a little bit more difficult in terms of the decision making process because we didn't have we didn't have that sounding board being the client. And we didn't have the the you've always got a degree of pushback from a client. Might, some cases it's only ten or twenty percent, but in some cases it's fifty or sixty percent, and they make you 
we have to sort of really um, work quite collaborative to get to a design outcome that, that works for the project. On this, we didn't really have that so much, so we sort of had to had to manufacture Actually, it. I would argue that. I would argue I carried played the role of the pushback. Yeah, well, so a lot of other people did, but there was yeah. no there was no one person that was was the client who had, was ultimately responsible for decision making. Yeah. You know, being responsible for the ultimate decision making is a is a very different factor um, in terms of in terms of the the design process. Mm. But um, but yeah, I mean, we've always got people that that we rely on for feedback who are, who are also not the client on just about every project. So yeah, yeah. Um, so we still had that sort of design support network in mm. a sense, which you were a big part of. Yeah. Um, and in that, like when you are renovating ultimately to go to market, that getting that feedback is really important. Yeah. Because, you know, obviously you know this and you're probably one of the few architects that do do really know this, that, you know, making giving it broad appeal is essential. Mm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm. But you've still got to have that good design element and the wow factor and, yep. yeah. Yeah, well, it's a, that's a tough balance because you need something which is going to make a property unique, and at the same time, you're you're sort of trying to to balance broad appeal. Which, when you when you speak to um, a lot of real estate agents, yeah, I think you can if if you were to have them be the client, which is which is not really tried to do, but on this on this project, you know, have spent some time speaking to to real estate agents about what what may or may not be good design moves. And when you do that, I think that you can often find yourself catering too much to broad appeal rather than rather than necessarily... Giving it that unique twist. Yeah, giving it a unique edge to it. Yeah, yeah. That's a fine balance. It is a very fine balance. And I think it's something that everyone, everyone that's flipping um, has to deal with. Yeah. But I guess probably more so for you. I think the difficult part is you only really know if you've reached that balance when you're getting market feedback exactly <laughs> so it's only really when it's on the market that you know you know whether that that bold move that you've made is paying off or if it's freaking people out exactly so you didn't really oh yeah actually you did make a, one a significant bold move i thought which was the choice of the tiles in the bathroom hmm. So uh, D- David, so we David selected these very beautiful hand pressed tiles for the bathroom in a sage green. We love them so much we use them in two other projects, but in the other projects um, we only did a feature wall, whereas David tiled all walls in these um, tiles. And on the external angles, he actually mitered the tile so because it was a wavy tile it sort of had slightly slightly wavy edge Hmm. which i was wondering how that would turn out so normally we don't mitre because for a few reasons but the main one being is because it adds a lot of expense however you know david being a stickler for the quality of the finish um did mitre it and i have to say it turned out really well. I loved it, but I wondered how it would go up market and it would appear that market loved it too. Hmm. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, we, uh, well, sorry, rather, I had a sort of vision for the bathroom that it would have an immersive feel to it and it and that it would have a sort of beachside immer- immersive feel to it. And part of that was that I wanted it to feel like you were almost bathing in a in a saturation of, of a very light, you know, subtle colour, but that you were... Sort of had that sense that the the room was full of a, a a sense of a sense of light and a sense of color, and that's what the what the light green was about. Mm. Um, and the and the other part was that I wanted the material palette to feel really tactile. And so the rather than having a completely flat and rectified rectified tile, um, we would very rarely go for go for a gloss tile, to be honest with you. But mm. um, with the with the hand pressed tile, the gloss gives it gives it a really kind of interesting reflection of light and a nice kind of rippling effect across the wall. And the other part of that is that I think that having a having an aluminium angle at the edge would have just completely broken the tactility of that tile. It really needed to have the the wavy edge even right to the right to the corner. Um, and so 
I wasn't really sure how the how the wavy edge was going to go with with being mitered either. But and my Tyler was was pretty strongly opposed to it. But he, I just asked him to do a mock up and had a look at it on site the day that he did the mock up, and it looked fantastic. And he agreed that it looked mm. that it looked good. I mean, he was really unsure about it, but. Um, it basically just means that you have to always mitre on the on the pressed edge of the tile, so that if you need to do a cut, you do a cut elsewhere, um, and you you mitre on the pressed edge so that you can leave a couple of mil um, on the edge of it, and you're not actually cutting through the, the mm. tile where you're mitering it. Yeah, that's and really important because often fantastic. those edges are very fragile as well. Yeah, and they will chip easily. So yep. that's so he could up. leave actually quite a bit of meat in the edge yeah. of the tile where yeah. he mitered it. Yeah, um, let's do it. It's called a bird's mouth mitre, where where it's sort of left a little bit a little bit open still, so it's got quite a bit of quite a bit of substance to the mitre. Yeah, it did look good. Yeah, and I I would say you definitely delivered on your outcome because it did feel like you were surrounded in this sort of soft sea green. Mm. You would say. Mm. Um, and I think the 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 terrazzo floor tile was a part of that as well. You know, I looked at some samples of. Um, porcelain terrazzo imitations and it just doesn't it, it doesn't give you that really authentic feel of of you know a real terrazzo and the end, end of the day it was only really 10 square meters of tile oh, we were exactly. talking about so it was yeah. you know a hundred dollars a square meter for tiles versus 50 or 60 dollars a square meter for tiles is really it wasn't an argument worth no uh, i would agree with thinking. that um I think the other thing was that it, it sort of really harked back to the 50s a bit. You know, I remember the mm -hmm. 50s, they yeah. had that sort of soft green, often pastel colours with terrazzo yep. floor. Actually, uh, we will include the images in the show notes so that you can see what we're talking about. But I would say that that was executed really well. So the ensuite was actually a conversion of the laundry. Mm. Mm. That I would was say a bit challenging. That, that was a bit challenging, yeah. I would say that was probably one of the more significant challenges, primarily because the ceiling height in the apartment, I mean, it's a it's a pretty typical apartment of the era, so the ceiling heights were never more than 2.4 metres, which means that once you drop the ceiling in the bathroom, which it was already dropped for the plumbing above, Can and I just you raise jump the in floor. There? I would say, uh, I'm pretty sure the ceiling height was higher than that in the rest of the apartment. No, it was 2.47. Oh, okay. And we we dropped the ceiling in the rest of the apartment by fifty mil to get the to to um, overcome the vermiculite and yep. put downlights in. And in the bathrooms, because you've always got well, nine times out of ten, um, you'd have a dropped ceiling already in a bathroom and a laundry because you've got the plumbing from the level above. So we're already down to two point two or just under two point two. Then in the laundry, in order to get the plumbing for the shower, and I had to raise it by about. 80 mil it was already up about 40 so we lost a little bit of ceiling height there so in order to have a compliant bathroom which is 2.1 i was sort of quite it was quite tight to to get that floor get that, that plumbing into the floor so yeah um it was tight but it was workable yeah um, had, a, had a good plumber and managed to sort of strategically locate all of the services very close to to where the riser was so so for those of you who don't know what a riser is, it's actually like a sort of a tunnel that goes up a building and all the services, the pipe work for the sewer, the water, even the power go up inside that. So in the in a bathroom, if you want to move things around, you've got to sort of get the drainage, have a riser close enough that you can get the drainage into it and you can bring the hot and mm. cold out of it. Yep. And fortunately, because this was a laundry, it did have a riser very conveniently located, which enabled you to be able to convert it into yep. a, yeah. And the other thing is because, so the so just talking about the, the rationale around adding that extra bathroom, an extra bathroom is always a good thing, but extra good in this uh, property because it was going to be or already was a high value property and with the renovation it would that would exacerbate that and it basically meant you had two separate suites so two bedrooms with bathrooms so two like professional couples could live in the property and so it, it just made it more flexible mm, it also it turned out i didn't, didn't sort of think about it at the time but it turned out to be a huge uh, safety net in in terms of turning the property around in a relatively short time period because 
other properties had sold in the building for significantly less and well less less than what I had paid originally mm. and so you know obviously I, I there was a sort of downturn in the market um, in Bondi it was a relatively minor downturn I would oh, say but no, it, it was, I would argue that I think Bondi was hit quite significantly it was, it was pro- probably something in the realm of eighty to a hundred thousand dollars to to my property value um, based on yeah based on my estimates yeah. of what was selling what was selling you know before and after and but you know there are areas that hit, hit a lot harder than that so mm. but it was a it was a a massive safety net in that sense because if anybody was to look at the other sales in the in the building and say well this one sold for for eighty thousand less than that less one. than less mm. than that one or you know how can you how can you possibly justify wanting to get over one point one or or anywhere near one point two for this this kind of a property when something else sold for eight hundred you know just six months ago but obviously being fully renovated is a is a big factor but but to be able to say that it, it's not even it doesn't even have the same numbers because it's got a it's got two bathrooms rather than one it just completely puts it in a different league mm, it does yeah and so in that sense it was a massive safety net because. Because you couldn't, you couldn't sort of compare it to anything else in the building anymore. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Which also helped because the, you know the building itself was mid mid upgrade in mm. terms of dealing with concrete we'll cancer and all sorts of things. So <laughs> yeah, the other thing that we didn't mention was that this apartment had spectacular views. That's not overstating it, is it? No, I don't no. think so. 180-degree views of the ocean from every window in the property, including the bathroom. And the owner, the previous owner, had actually built up the toilet on a platform so that you could sit on the toilet and look out the window and see the view, which we thought was absolutely hilarious. And so, of course, David removed that in the reno, uh, but what he did do was replace the frosted glass with clear so that you could, you know, you could take in or mm. appreciate the view while you were there cleaning your teeth or whatever. Yeah, mm. yeah. I thought that was um, quite a good move. And being five floors up, there's no risk of anyone being able to see in. So it was, yeah, yeah uh, definitely... So you normally work on projects with much more generous budgets. I have heard you talking about paying $10,000 for a bath. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens from time to time. <laughs> was it difficult? Well, was it 10000 or 40000 Anyhow. A lot of money. Yeah. It was a difficult... It was a beautiful bath, by the way. <laughs> it, was, it was timber. It's made, oh, it made of right. cedar. It was, it was really fantastic. It was a Japanese cedar bath. It was phenomenal. So how much was it? I can't actually remember, but it was a lot of money. Yeah, I think it was closer to 40. Okay. Was it difficult for you to balance what you do with the budget on your in your day-to-day work um, compared to, because obviously you need to, um, so how much did you spend, by the way? Spent all up around 95, around 95,000. Mm. Mm. And normally, actually, that fits perfectly into the benchmark. Because normally we spend, in, in a structural reno in an apartment, we would spend about 10%. Okay. So paid nine eighty five. Yeah. Actually, you are under, under budget. <laughs> 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 so, um, uh, yeah, so did you find that really challenging? Well, I mean, not, I, I don't think so. It, it's whenever we're, always for us, design is about, is about being strategic. And so, you know, especially when it comes to renovations, there's always a big portion of the budget that's spent cosmetically. Well, especially when you, you're dealing with something that was in a state of repair that ours, that, you know, that the Bondi was in, you tend to spend a significant portion of the budget doing things that are not so strategic, you know, like replacing the floors and um, things that just sort of have to be done, repainting and repairing bits of, bits of, cracked plaster on the walls and those sorts of things but i i, I think that all de, all design comes down to the strategic moves and, and how you strategically spend the money and part of that for for bondi was about was about spending the money on the bathroom getting the second bathroom in and you know some other much smaller strategic moves like like details of the 
putting the P50 cornice in instead of mm. a instead of a um, traditional cornice and those sorts of things, which really just I think completely transform the effect of where you're already spending quite a bit of money. Yeah. You know, for an extra thousand dollars to put P50 in instead of a traditional cornice. I don't think it was even that much, to be honest. Actually, they. Well, look, that was that's what my plasterer told me it was. Uh, oh, maybe okay. it was, he was just leading me away from it, but. Um, <laughs> I, they say that the sign of an, a reno that an architect's done is the amount of P50 used. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, P50 is the angle that plasterers use to make that um, shadow, line. shadow line sort of around the ceiling and around basically everything. You know, it's used in lots of places, which yeah. gives a really nice architectural finish to the untrained eye. You probably wouldn't notice it. You'd think it looked really, had a really nice detail, but wouldn't notice it. But it does finish uh, really beautifully. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, look, I, th I think that we actually often really enjoy doing projects that are of much, much smaller budgets because you have to be much more strategic with how you spend your money. So that's what we like about, about doing small scale renovations. I don't think that we definitely don't find a big budget to be more fulfilling from a design perspective. Yeah. So no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it was that it was any more challenging or, yeah. or any less fulfilling in that in yeah. that sense. Okay. And you, in some in some ways you need to be more creative because yeah. you've got to, you know, you can't just throw money at it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, or creative in different ways. I mean, I think there's a value to being or to the creative potential of a project that's completely unconstrained from a budgetary perspective, but I think there's also a value to to projects that are that have I mean, every project has some kind of constraint, yeah. um, and usually it's the creative. That's where the creativity comes from is the is the constraint. So, well, that's what we tend to find. Mm. Creative solutions to to constraints yeah. are often the the crux of the creative potential of a project. So, yeah, I guess a couple of the big ticket items in terms of the Reno were for well, probably the the three biggest ones were the. The structural work, as in taking out mm. the wall and 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 closing off the yep. laundry and turning that into an, a a room, and I, I think that that cost about eight thousand, didn't it? The actual uh, structural yeah, work, seven and a half, yeah. Putting the beams in and and yep. so on. So the ceiling was uh, vermiculite, which is you know that popcorn ceiling, which is absolutely horrendous. So what David did was he battened that out and um and put a lower ceiling in so that you could then get down lights in as well because that's a problem with apartments high-rise apartments or multi-story is, is the fact that the ceilings are the suspended concrete floor of the apartment above and you really can't be saw cutting them so mm -hmm. yeah that was an advantage so what did that the ceilings cost around six thousand okay so all the way through yeah. and the third, I guess, big ticket item was the engineered floor. That was, oh, no, yep. that actually wasn't too bad in the end. I can't remember what that cost, but it was no. about $80 a square metre or something. Yeah, which installed. is very reasonable for yeah. uh, good quality oak engineered floor. Yeah. Um, so they're probably the things that was would have, you know, been out of the ordinary. So I think given that, you, your budget was quite good. Yep. Yep. What, were there any favourite products? Did you have any good finds in terms of products oh, that you used? To be honest with you, I think that the Terrazzo is probably still one of my favourites. It's one of the ones that everybody walks in and comments on. I think that's a, I think that's probably a favourite. And that uh, was about 100 a square metre? Yeah, I think it might have been 110 actually. Yeah, and where did you get that from? I can, re I can remember surface, sourcing it. Surface Gallery. Okay, Surface Gallery. We'll give them a plug. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's... They're a supplier that we use we use a bit in our higher end work, and so it's not something that would usually be a go to on a on a cosmetic renovation. But I'm really glad I used it. Mm, looked great. I think yeah. it was, as I say, it wasn't a huge area of of tiling, so it wasn't a massive expense for the project. But yeah. I think it was money well spent. What others? I think the dark mirror splashback was another one that that. I was sort of surprised by how well it worked in the room when it's it first a, went in. I wasn't sure a, about it. Did you always know it was going to be dark mirror? Because I thought it wasn't. And I when always I saw knew it was going to be tinted, but I didn't know. Well, we, so the thing with mirror splashback is that when you toughen mirror, it has to be 
dark mirror. It's, it's almost impossible to get a completely clear. But I've put toughened tough mirror, mirror mirror splashbacks in before, and they it's haven't not, been dark. It's not like usually that. that dark, yeah. Yeah. So I was a bit shocked um, yeah. when I saw it, but it did work really so well. So was I, but yeah, once the once the timber cabinetry was in and over the top and the stone bench top was in, it all kind of worked quite well together. But yeah. it did look dark the first day it went in. Yes. Um, I had to double check the sample and make sure it was actually the right one. But it's it's funny, it just it looked just because of how white the the renovation was, how at yes. that at that point the floors were still covered, so you didn't you couldn't see the timber floors, it didn't have the timber overhead cabinetry finished off yet, so it all it, it looked very dark by comparison to everything else in the room. I think I think also because I used lexicon, quarter strength lexicon for the, for all of the white throughout. It's a it's very, very white. It's a very white white. Yes. Um, and I think it's a tiny one, but I think if I had my time again, I would probably use something just a shade warmer. Mm. Um, I really like white on white. Yeah. I think it's it's crisp, but I, lexicon tends to sort of little be a bit bluish. Yeah, it's know? a tiny bit blue. Which, which cold was sort of intentional, given that. You've got so much, so much view of blue ocean and blue sky. I, yeah. I sort of, I felt that that was going to be a better fit, but against certain things, I found it just a shade too blue. So against the against the linen curtains, for instance, mm. I found it just a tiny bit too mm. blue because they've it, got that sort of warmth to them. Yeah. That, that I mean, once once it, they'd been in for a week, it, it felt completely fine. I'm sure that. Nobody else would walk in and think that the the walls are too white, but um, but personally, I would have felt a bit more comfortable if it was a tiny bit, tiny bit warmer. Yeah, actually, something that you did that I would never do is paint the walls flat paint. Hmm. I, I don't regret that. I think it was the right decision. It, it feels. So do you want to talk about the rationale behind it? Well, it just gives gives the room a really soft soft feel to it. It's um, I think it's. Aesthetically, in terms of the in terms of the feeling of the space, it, it feels really good. Uh, yeah, it did look good, sort of velvety, I think mm. you'd say. However, when you've had four kids, you would never go near flat paint ever because you know the minute you. Well, the other thing is though, it's the walls are not perfect. You know, mm. there's been a lot of there are sections of wall that have been not by by us, but that were patched with render because they had. Um, you know, service rises in them and it wasn't like a perfect rendered finish throughout the entire apartment just because of the quality of workmanship of the original build. Yeah. So I think a flatter paint is a bit more forgiving in that sense, yep. which is why you use ceiling white. Yeah, exactly. Which is flat, flat. Yeah. And obviously you couldn't go that flat yep. on a wall, but but yeah, I, th I think it was, I, I, I still stand by it. I, know yep. that, I mean, I lived in it for for over six months or around that, that period of time uh, after the renovation and there was a little bit of work in keeping them perfectly clean, but yeah. it was doable. I mean, it was a good quality paint. It was a, still a wash and wear, so yeah. It's, yeah. Um, it was definitely cleanable. But yeah, I mean, if you had kids in an apartment like that, you'd probably think twice about it. So let's talk about, I guess, the building itself. Hmm. First, uh, firstly, um, getting approval. So the process of getting uh, strata approval, normally I have to do that on our project. So I was very happy that David was able to negotiate that with no input. Mm -hmm. How did that go? Uh, fine. I mean, I was pretty lucky. We had a really, um, really sort of warm and friendly strata, which isn't always the case. I would argue that you created that. And I think yeah, that's well, a really important lesson to take. If you're going to want to do stuff, yeah. you need to uh, build relationships with the other owners. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, that was from day one. Yeah, I made sure that, and it wasn't. It wasn't even just about building a relationship so that it made my life easy for for the renovation. I just, you know, I think if you're going to be doing work in a building that's got, you know, thirty or hundred other people living in it, you need to. You have some sort of responsibility to make sure that their lives aren't made miserable throughout the process as well. well. Not everyone looks at it like that, but I'd agree with you. Yes. So, I mean, that that definitely made the process quite a bit easier. Um, I took up a role on the executive committee because I knew I'd be there for a little while. So that 
that also just meant that I had a strong relationship with anybody anybody else who was there. And by the time it came to to getting the approval in place, it was Rubbers effectively there. a foregone conclusion. Yeah, I knew that I had some time, so I circulated the plans long before the the meeting, the AGM. Uh, I didn't need to call an extraordinary meeting, so that sort of made it easy because it meant that when it came to it being being fielded at the AGM, it was sort of just another item on the on the list. Um, and uh, yeah, look, I didn't have any. But there were some questions. There were definitely, in fact, there were there were quite a number of questions around the plumbing, and it's it's always a sort of process in educating people mm-hmm. when it when it comes to doing something which has never been done in the building before. Mm. And so there were a lot of questions about whether the whether the waste riser was adequate for for a bathroom because it was obviously designed to be a laundry. Mm. So I had my plumber through and he provided a letter to, to certify that it was and they weren't happy with that. So I had their plumber through and he provided a letter to certify that it was all okay. And there were still a few people that were a bit uneasy about it after all of that. But, but you know, there's a bit of hand-holding and sometimes you just need to pay some extra trades to to go through and have it peer-reviewed and and mm. verified that it's all that it's all above board. Um, but... Look, I mean that that is always a little bit time consuming, but it, it mm-hmm. um, went down relatively smoothly. And then I had to get a CDC, a Compliant Development Certificate, because um, because I was reconfiguring the format of the rooms. So yeah. basically, whenever you do something structural in an apartment, or whenever you do, whenever you're reconfiguring a, a room, you'll need to get you need to get a Compliant Development Certificate. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that's you get that through a building certifier. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing it in apartments, you need a the the certifier needs to be uh, have the accreditation to do buildings over how many floors? What's is it three floors or I, I don't actually know. But uh, yeah, I think, I think it is, it's I think three it floors. Three, yeah. Um. So there's so it's a specific um certifier, but the, it's a quick process. You just mm-hmm. got to get all your ducks in a row, really, don't you? Mm. Yeah. And um, well, it can it can be quick. I mean, it, there are some things that can trip you up on it, which you need to sort of be on top of. If my building didn't have a didn't have a um, current fire certificate, annual fire safety statement, um, which you have to have I in order to get. I just cannot believe that they didn't. Well, yeah. Look, it just unfortunately, this there were some strata documents that weren't weren't in such great order when when I first bought it. So, and that was. That was actually probably the basis of getting it at a at a fairly reasonable price as well. You know, there were some things that weren't quite right in the mm. building at the time. There were some unknowns, and it would have scared a lot of buyers off. Mm. You know, I was able to sort of look at the information that was there and thought that it wasn't a massive risk. Mm. But yeah, one of them was an annual fire safety statement, which which yeah. wasn't in order. But time. it is now. Yeah. Yeah. And so the other, just getting on to some of the unknowns, one of the other issues with that property was when we bought it, we knew that it had, uh, it was going to have to have some concrete cancer work mm. done. Mm. And so I guess we were aware that we would probably have to spend about 20000 yep. on a special levy and that did come to pass, So which was fine because, you know, that was factored into the price, really, wasn't it? Mm. But what we didn't bargain for, two things. One, the um, property market taking such a nosedive. And two, the the impact of the Opal building and the um, structural issues with the Opal and the Mascot building freaking buyers out more than anything, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, I, we, we heard a lot about it. I don't, I didn't really experience a sort of first-hand impact of that on on my pro- project or on my on that property the, with the um the the questions around the buyers oh look people are much more diligent yeah yeah for sure yeah um but you know because so it's could so, I just because suge- could I just so remind you of something you weren't here when that was happening remember oh yeah but you know I've got the correspondence <laughs> So one thing that that David did is he the minute the property went to market, he took off to India and not only did he go to India, but
but he went into a silent retreat for 10 days. And this was when the, the sales campaign was in at its peak, which was fine because I knew the answers to most of the questions with, ex except for the fact that I wasn't across the conversations he had had with the strata. And when buyers were sort of concerned about the special levy, the can concrete cancer, what could come up, I just really wasn't up to speed with what he had uh, communicated. So that was interesting. And I want to actually declare that there was a lot of concern. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> people are right to be concerned about, about these they things. They are. But um, I think that it's one benefit of renovating older buildings is that is that the majority, if you're going to have major structural issues coming up in a in a building like like the sort of issues that have been happening with opal they're not going to come up 60 years later exactly so you know you will you will you're not going to have a, a sort of latent it's very 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 unlikely that you're going to have a major latent defect that's going to show up that late um mm. I, I can't imagine one it could happen i guess but, but i can't imagine it mm. and so the sorts of issues that you will have are you can still have quality of workmanship issues, which is really the the problem that we had with the concrete cancer there, which is just that the reinforcing wasn't wasn't didn't have adequate embedment. It should have been much deeper in the concrete than when it was. When it was originally done. When it was originally done. Yeah. But it's sort of to some extent at the point that we bought it, it was to some extent a known quantity. Um, we sort of knew that that there was a reasonably significant amount of work that needed to be done to the building, but there they had already started some of the work. They had provided some estimates of, of the cost of, of doing the rectification. The estimates weren't quite right, as they never will be, but they, they gave you some sort of a benchmark. Mm. Mm. It was a little bit frustrating that that work wasn't completed mm. in the period that I owned the apartment because it's much more difficult selling something that's got active rectification works yeah. happening. Um, but... You know, the fact that they were 90% complete helped. Yeah, yeah. And, okay, so we're probably coming to the end of the chat. So just one thing, what would you do differently? There are some small things that I would do differently. Some of the things that we've Already discussed, things like, things like paint colour and, um, you know, some, some small detailed decisions that I would, that I would make differently now. One of them that's probably a little bit less small, I guess you would say, is um, small in terms of decision-making, but, but massive in terms of process, is to make sure that just because it was quite a detail-oriented renovation, to make sure that I had the joiner down for doing shop drawings, detailed shop drawings, because I didn't, didn't get detailed shop drawings from the joiner and it I it thought you did have it in the scope and you just didn't do them yeah but I, I guess just to to enforce that they actually happen mm. because do you want to explain that process well yeah so I mean your designer if, if you're using an architect or if you're using a draftsperson will will draw the joinery the way that they want to see it and sometimes they'll be very detailed and sometimes they'll be quite basic it might just be a floor plan and then if you're getting shop drawings from your joiner, which I recommend getting if you've got a sort of, I'd always recommend getting them, but but especially if you've got a detail focus on the on the project, those shop drawings will come back as effectively a set of drawings the joiner is doing to demonstrate how they're going, what they're going to deliver, and it's always a little bit different to the design drawings. So, you know, you may need to have a have a different. A, a different type of door or a different kind of closure on a particular panel or a different you know may need to be a strip next to between the drawers and the and the built-in built-in dishwasher for instance mm. um so that the so that the dishwasher panel can open and so the joiner will come back with those drawings and say this is what we're planning to deliver um this is how we're planning to build it this is how it's all going to go together and sometimes they'll just be visual they might just give you a 3d a, that looks a little bit like a sketch up model or something that shows you what the kitchen's going to look like and it, that gives you something to comment on because you then know how they're planning to be, how they're planning on building it you can say i don't like that and then talk through why they think they need to do it that way and you can sort of negotiate negotiate the design outcome and sometimes it will mean that 
you need to swap things around in the kitchen um, in order to, you know, make sure that you don't have any infill panels or that you don't have weird junctions here and there that they think that the, that the joint is telling you are sort of essential in order to deliver it the way that you're saying that you want it mm. or the, towards the layout that you're saying that you want. That's, I mean, that's a very, very common process in always in our high-end builds. Um, the shop drawing process really sort of refines and resolves the design further because it's only the joiner really knows how how they're going to be able to put that together and no two joiners will do it the same. So it's really important um, because I didn't get it for part just, of the build. Can I just jump in there? It's important on every project, even when you do a flat pack from IKEA, you end up with what's essentially a shop drawing. Yep. So you know exactly how things are going to line up, where the, where the, you know, there's going to be filler panels and things like that. So you have mm. some control over the um, yep. quality of it. Yeah. Uh, at, at Bondi, I was trying to have no filler panels anywhere and I was trying to have, you know, consistent uh, finger pulls that followed through the mitres. And there are a few details that were important to me to, to sort of have it, have it be a, a really considered architecturally designed outcome. And 90% of them we ended up getting over the line. But when the kitchen first went in, uh, I had to have it taken back out again mm. because it it just wasn't it wasn't consistent enough with the drawings. And unfortunately, it was a rush to try to get it in. And in that in that rush, I I sort of accepted the resolution that the joiner had put forward that we wouldn't have shop drawings, but that it would it would match the design drawings. And it was that was a mistake. That yeah. I don't think I'll make again. Yeah. So um, at the time we needed a new joiner and we had two options. So David used one and we used another. And I think David got the dud. <laughs> oh, well, look, it was... <laughs> He's um, off it, the list, isn't he? It, was, it, was a, it wasn't a totally seamless process, let's put it that way. <laughs> I'd say that's the um, understatement of the year. But I, I think honestly, though, I mean, he, he came to the table in rectifying uh, the vast majority of... Yeah problems that were created unfortunately some of them couldn't be rectified um and if we had have picked those up at the shop drawing stage i think he would have he would have come to the table with those as well yeah. the, the only the only thing that other than I, I would i would put the resolution not to have shop drawings as my error rather than his yes. i know that he suggested it but but i would i would make that um i would certainly say that i was responsible for for accepting that but the the one thing that I would say that I would, I would hold him responsible for would, would be timing. He just wasn't that quick, unfortunately. Yeah. And always taking a piece of joinery out and sending it back to the shop and having it having mm. it rebuilt and put back in again is just going to be the slowest way to deliver a kitchen that you could ever imagine. Mm. So getting and, shop drawings can, can really yeah. speed, well, can mitigate major time delays as well. Yeah. And like um, even like the built-in wardrobe, I know you specified really chunky members, mm. right? You know the shelving and whatever, mm. and that did make a massive difference. Mm. Yeah, that he got there in the end, not perfectly, but yep. to the untrained eye, I think it would. Be that's fine. the thing. But that's the thing. I mean, a, a joiner will look at a set of drawings and not really know what's important about them. Yep. Not not realise that that the chunky shelf was an important. Um, you know, design aspect of it, that it was sort of critical to making it look like it had a bit of substance to it. Yeah. And so when that showed up on site with with just a 19 mil um, piece of carcass as the, he was treating that as the finished the yeah. finished product, he just wasn't aware that that was a significant design component. Come out in the shop drawing stage, I would have turned around and said, this is, it's just not, that's not right. It needs to be needs to be per the drawing and and it would have been resolved before it got to site and yeah. it's frustrating having to having to have those things fixed on site it's incredibly frustrating having to have a piece of joinery taken back out again yeah yeah and also i mean i, I was lucky that i had a joiner that was that was very forthcoming in making those amendments because i could have easily had a joiner that turned around and said well that's what you're getting because that's what that's what we've delivered and yeah yeah you know that that could have been a lot worse. It that process have. could have been a lot, lot worse. Yeah. And so the last thing, the last challenge, I would say, was the balcony. 
yes. Yeah. So um, David would have liked to have retiled the balcony because it was pretty ordinary. Mm. And we couldn't do that because if we retiled it, it was already it did, already didn't meet code, did it? No, it didn't. So the the balustrade was high enough, but it didn't have a non-climbable zone, which it has to have between 150 and 760 mil. So basically, you need to have a zone that that doesn't create a foothold for mm. for a child to climb. Um, and it fell short on that by about 20 mil. Mm. So, so the tiling would have, yeah. So the tiling would have would have tripped that up. Yeah. And so I've, I, I, the reason I'm making this point is I've seen a lot of tile, uh, sorry, um, renovators sort of think that they've got away with it. So they've, they've, they've tiled the balcony even though, you know, it's not approved, which is not the most important thing. The most important thing is that it breaches the building code. And what that does is just really, um, well, one, you know, you don't really want any child to be hurt or, you know, mm. Uh, as a result of something that you've done, but two, you just set yourself up to be hugely liable. Yeah, well, you're permanently exposed then. Yeah, to the liability forever. It's, um, it's not yeah. just not just while you own the property or yeah, whatever. It's it's that's a that's a permanent liability. It's definitely not caveat emptor. Um, if you've made changes that um, are not approved and don't meet the code. And so I would really um, strongly recommend anyone that's that does that to rethink it. Because, you know, if someone did go over that balcony, whether it was a child or whatever, someone fooling around, uh, you know, even if it was their own fault, uh, you would still be um, mm. held to account. Yeah, and even if the, even if the, if somebody injures themselves in that sense, even if it wasn't related to the work that you did. Yeah, I know, yeah. So in my instance, it seemed like it would have been a relatively low risk low risk situation because the 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 top of the wall that would have would have um sort of substantiated a, a finger hold is would be actually very difficult to climb on because the the balustrade actually or the handrail actually close. cantilevered inwards mm. so it would have been almost impossible to mm. have used it as a finger hold but if anybody ever fell off the balcony or 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 in, injured themselves in any way um, it wouldn't really matter. Yeah. It wouldn't matter whether that was what caused it or not. Yeah. yeah. It's just the fact that you've done work that, that is non-compliant is, yeah. is the risk. Exactly. And so um, just to wrap this up, the final conclusion. So in terms of the actual auction, um, I have to say our agent worked really hard. Mm. He really rose to the occasion and... Um, because there was quite a bit of concern about the building, he really did what it took to build relationships with the potential buyers and make sure that their concerns were allayed right mm. up to the next that morning. He had people ringing him. As a result, so um, we used our favourite auctioneer, Damien Cooley, who did an awesome job and as mm. a result got a record price for that building. So... Property was purchased for nine point eight four four, and sold for one point nine eight four. <laughs> what was it? Nine nine hundred eighty four thousand. Point nine eight four. Yep. Oh, okay. Is it rather was it the rather than nine point eight four? Oh, sorry. Yep. And um, sold for one point three two. So it was a spectacular result, which mm. I worked out equated to twenty thousand per square meter. Mm. which in a building that's, you know, there was a lot of concern around, I thought that was awesome and so delivered on the result we were looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Really happy with the outcome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, and just before we go, do you want to, because, um, so I guess one of the things about David is that he has been working on our projects since he was in, he started uni, so a long time. So he's had a lot of exposure to renovating with a tight budget and doing for-profit projects, um, done a lot of in apartments. Do you want to talk about what you do during the day? Uh, yep. So I work for a um, sort of very design-focused um, practice called Collins and Turner, and work on a really broad range of projects, but everything from uh, childcare centres to um, to working for councils, currently working on some 
some um, relatively significant civic projects to bars and restaurants and and high-end houses so really very broad range um, of projects and I do that I do that for the majority of the week and then I, I spend a day a week working on working on projects that that are sort of a little bit closer to home in terms of the in terms of the my history with um with building having grown up on on building sites and renovations working on uh sort of residential mostly renovations and extensions but a few new builds um with a business partner of mine in a practice that we run called Thurlow studio um and so the work that we do there is is as i sort of saying at the beginning much more of the uh uh sort of strategic well we find it much more much kind of more strategic use of use of the budget because they're often much smaller budgets we get a little bit less of a blank canvas on them than, than what my business partner and I get in our in our other practices but really fun and really really rewarding projects to work on so yeah. so we we really like working at the renovation end of yeah. the spectrum yep in our own business because it's um yeah as I say you often the design value of something comes out of the constraint that's applied to it so and for anyone that's uh, ever done our boot camp, you would know that another thing that David does is he does concept drawings for our students' projects. So mm. you come into our boot camp, you bring your um, house plan in, and he'll work his magic on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, it's one of my favourite things to do. Yeah, exactly. So like brainstorm in a floor plan. Yeah, yeah. So um, and that's something you and I've been doing for quite a few years now, isn't yeah. it? So yeah. Okay, so that's it for today. Thanks for being on the show. We'll put your contact details in the show notes. And if anyone wants to contact David directly, there you go. This episode is sponsored by the My Airbnb online course. It's our new online course to learn to build your first wildly successful six-figure short-term rental business. You'll learn how to go from zero to 100,000 per year inside 12 months without owning a single property. It's about to open its doors, so if you would like to know more or to add your name to the wait list, look for details in the show notes or just email admin at theschoolofrenovating.com. Well, that's it for today. If you would like to see photos of the project, head over to the website to theschoolofrenovating.com forward slash episode 60 and then head to Facebook and join our community of awesome renovators at She Renovates and I'll see you back here next week with another episode of She Renovates. This is the She Renovates podcast. To discover how to harness the power of renovating, check out theschoolofrenovating.com.